as we just meditate on how much you love us, and that love is real, that you're not a God just sitting in heaven waiting to see whether we do everything right or not, whether we get everything right and qualify for your love. You gave your love to us in a tangible form by sending your Son to live among us and then to die and pay for our sins. You've demonstrated your love towards us and you desire to do that every day in our life as we give you opening and we give you access. So, Father, as we're beginning to learn on these Wednesday night studies that that can only happen by faith. And so tonight as we turn to our father Abraham to see the example that you've given to us in your word of this father of faith and how he grew in his faith so that we can learn to grow with you in our faith. We're trusting the Holy Spirit to do what only he can do, to take this word, the teacher to take this word and deposit it in our hearts and to open our eyes. For your word says, our eyes have not seen, our ears have not heard, nor has it entered into the hearts of men all that God has prepared for those who love them. That means tonight there are things in the depths of your heart you have prepared for each one of us who loves you. But your word goes on to say, but your spirit's been given to reveal these things. And so we're trusting him by faith to do that for us tonight. And so I yield myself as best I know how with the things that I've studied and meditated on and put in my heart, not just today, but as I've learned to walk with you that you will take this and I will speak only what is your heart and your, your mind and your words tonight. And for that we trust you in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Well, we're talking about faith. We've done a number of things about faith here and we just want to begin with Hebrews 11.6, which is the, kind of the foundation for all of this. Why is it important for us to grow in faith? I, I mentioned last week that... that, that <laughs> If there's ever a time we've got to realize how important it is to learn to walk by faith, it ought to be now. Because a year ago, everything was chaos. There was great fear out there with this pandemic. And then as we closed last year out and came into the beginning of this year, there's this great hope of the, of the vaccine, and we've seen progress through the vaccine, and now we have this new wave coming through, and people suggest maybe we need boosters, maybe there's still people that don't feel like they should be vaccinated. There's confusion out there, and it just reveals to us that with the very best of intentions, the skilled scientists and doctors, and we have some of them that belong here, uh, excellent people devoted to seeing this thing defeated, they're only doing the best they can. And the best they can is often ultimately not enough. So we as the people of God have got to learn to do what God's told us to do all along, and that's to learn to live by faith. The Bible teaches us that we're saved by faith, but it's not just whether we're saved by faith. We have to learn to live by faith, and that means learning how to do that every day. And so let's go to to Romans chapter 4. I don't know that I have that for them. Yeah, Romans chapter 4. This is the, the title of the series, it really comes from this. He see, and we receive, now what Paul is doing here is the Apostle Paul is just introduced to the Romans that, that salvation doesn't come by your works, it doesn't come by your good deeds, and by the way, none of us would qualify, he says. So he introduces that it, it come, it's only by faith in what Christ has done, and now he's going to begin to talk about what that faith is, and we will get there 
eventually. But here's the key. He said, and he received the sign, talking about Abraham, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal or a mark of the righteousness which he received by faith, which he had still while uncircumcised. So what he's saying here is that whether you were circumcised or not, referring to whether you were Jew or you weren't Jew, has nothing to do with this because Abraham's faith by which he was considered righteous, he exercised before God gave him this right of circumcision, which we'll see down the road. That he might be the fathers of all, father of all those who believe, that's us, though they were uncircumcised, that righteousness be imputed to them also. Verse 12. And the father of the circumcision, that's the Jews, to those who were not of the circumcision, but who walk, this is what I wanted to see, who also walk in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham had while he was uncircumcised. So Paul is teaching them, teaching us that we are to learn to walk in the steps of our father Abraham. And what that means to walk in someone's steps is not, you know, step one, step two, step three. It's to learn to walk, learn to walk in faith by following the example that he, by which he learned to walk in faith. And that's the story that we've begun to go through. And we started back in Genesis chapter, the end of chapter 11, actually, where Abraham's, and his name at this point is Abram. We'll explain the difference in a little while, probably not this week. And Abram, we see him introduced there, but in chapter 12, God appears to him and speaks to him and tells him to leave his home. He leaves his family and to go to a place God's going to tell him. And we talked about this several weeks ago. We saw that very often God begins by giving you something to do without giving you any explanation of what it is because he's requiring you to take a step of faith. So the first step Abraham, Abram takes is to, is to obey God by leaving where he was without knowing where God was taking him. And that's really the essence of faith. It's learning to trust God and not just trust him by how you feel and how you think, but how you act. Because faith without acting on it isn't faith at all. And so Abraham steps out in that faith. He obeys God mostly. But what God had told him to do, and this becomes significant to us today, is God told him to leave his family. That didn't mean his wife, but to leave his family where they were, which was his security, which was what he was comfortable with, which was what he was used to, and to leave all of that and to go where God was going to tell him to go. But what Abram did is he left his father, he left whatever other family he had there, but he took his nephew with him. His nephew's name was Lot. Now, part of why he may have done that is because Lot's father, Abraham's uncle, had died. And so Abraham was most likely feeling responsible for him, so he brings him along, but that violated what God had told him to do. And we're going to see tonight where it begins to get him in trouble. Then we saw what Abram did is he, he followed God to where God told him to go, which is what is, we would call Israel now or Palestine now. And then there was a famine in the land. We saw this in Genesis 13. And, oh, by the way, God made promises to Abraham when he first revealed this to him. He said, and I will bless you. And then we talked about what bl- the word blessed means. It's the Hebrew word barach, which literally means to bow or kneel to. 
And whenever that's used of man blessing God, it is obviously bowing to God, acknowledging that he is the creator and he is the ultimate authority and the source of all things. But what does it mean when it says God blessed Barach or bowed to to Abram? And what it means is God humbled himself and offered to Abram everything he had and everything he was. That's important to understand because the next thing that happens is there's a famine in the land and we see that God, Abram did not fully believe that God would do what he promised because when the famine hit where he was, he went south to Egypt. And we talked last week that Egypt represents the world, the world's way of providing for you, the world's way of healing you, the world's way of taking care of everything. Because Egypt was one of the most sophisticated nations in the world at that time. They were very advanced in medicine. They were advanced in pharmacology. They were advanced in all kinds of worldly, man's best understanding at that time of how to do things, which is really what the world is today. But God didn't tell him to go to Egypt. God said, I will provide for you. So Abram took things into his own hands to provide for himself. Now remember, he's just starting on this journey of faith. And part of what we'll see as we go through this is how patient God is with him. God meets him where he is because Abram's growing. He's, he made that first step to, to step out in faith and to follow God. And by doing that, God's, it, it seals God's commitment to him. So when Abram goes down into Egypt trying to take his own provision in his own hands, he gets, he goes even, it gets even worse because he, he realizes that his wife, Sarai, even though she's at this point, I think, in her 60s, that, that she's good looking enough that he's afraid that Pharaoh is going to take her for himself and kill Abram to get rid of her husband. So Abram pulls her aside, his wife aside, imagine this, and tells her, now when we get there, don't tell him you're my wife, tell him you're my sister. He's basically selling his wife out to save his own skin. Now there's half truth in this. She was a half-sister to him. They had the same father, but not the same mother. And she does that, she's a dutiful wife. And what happens is, God gives Pharaoh a dream and and basically warns him. There's a plague that breaks out, and God warns Pharaoh, and Pharaoh comes to Abram and says, somehow I have gotten your God angry, and he finds out what he's done, and he asks Abram and his whole entourage to leave, but they leave with far more wealth than when they came. The point is this. Even though Abram was not acting in faith, even though he was acting in fear, both about his own provision and about his own skin, God was still faithful to the commitment that he made to Abram. Because Abram's growing in his faith. And we talked about this last week. God expects us to grow in our faith. And because of the, the culture we live in, because of the ample provision that our country has and how blessed we are, and although many of us would not consider ourselves rich, if you go to some places in third world countries that we've been to, if you got a bicycle, you're rich. And so we have so many other places to turn to and to rely upon for the things that we need that we we don't have to learn to trust God. That time may be well coming, But up until now, we've not had to, so we become lazy. We become spiritually sluggish and fat. And then an emergency comes up, like a sudden pandemic, and we panic 
because the things we've trusted in are now shaking and we and now we're beginning to shake and realize we need to so this is the time to be building your faith this is the time to be learning to walk by faith and God will meet you where you are we see this in the story of Abram and that's one of the reasons i believe that God's having us go through this series right now so that's kind of what, by way of background and then what happens is when Abram, in Genesis 13, we see that when Abram and Lot come out of Egypt and they come back up into Palestine, they're so prosperous that their herds and their herdsmen and their employees are basically running into each other. The land's not big enough to hold them and strife breaks out. Now remember, I told you in the beginning that God did not tell him to take Lot with him. So his bringing Lot along is now beginning to cause him trouble. So he and Lot meet and they decide they've got to part their ways. And so Abram, because he is a man of faith, gives Lot the first choice. You choose where you're going to go and I'll take what's left. He can afford to do that because God's going to provide for him. And we saw last week what happened because Lot is not a man of faith. Now here's the distinction between somebody that's walking in faith and somebody that's not. Somebody that's walking in faith is not moved by the circumstances that they see, the natural circumstances. Their confidence and their faith is in what God has said and the God who has said it. But when you've not learned to walk by faith, you're controlled by what your mind tells you, you're controlled by what your senses are telling you, and that's what happened with Lot. When he was given a choice of where he wanted to take his family and where he wanted to take his herds and where he wanted to take his whole livelihood, he looked down into the valley and he saw the Jordan Valley and he saw that it was well watered, the Bible says. Well, the Jordan River waters it. He saw that it was rich in green grass. He saw that it was a very prosperous area. He saw, we saw those words, he saw all these things. And so because he was controlled by the decision of his mind, based on what he saw, he made a bad choice. Because walking by sight, he could not discern what was really there. Because what's located in this valley that he's going down to dwell in now are two cities we've heard of very well, Sodom and Gomorrah. And he, see, when you don't walk in faith you have trouble having spiritual discernment because you're governed by what you see and you're governed by what you feel and you're governed by what you think. And your ability to spiritually discern is not connected to any of your five senses. It's connected to your spirit man. And you've got to learn to follow that spirit man and listen to that spirit man by faith. So they make this division, and then once Lot has moved down into this beautiful, lush valley, God comes to Abraham and says, I'm going to bless you. Whatever you see out there, whatever you can see, I will give you. And he saw this vast area, and then God has him walk around it and claim it, and God gives to him what would eventually be called Israel, Palestine. And that's where we kind of... That's where we, not kind of, that's where we left off. Now we're going to go to Genesis 14. And we're going to see that Lot now begins to create trouble for Abram. 
We're just going to read down through some of this, and I'm going to break it down. The beginning is kind of a, an introduction. It came to pass in the days of, and this, some of these names I'm going to have trouble with, Amraphel, the king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Sherdalorum, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of the nations, that they made war, basically they made war with the kings that were in the valley where Lot was living, including the king of Gomorrah and the king of Sodom. And they all joined together, which is the Salt Sea, which is down by, uh, by, the, by the Salt Sea. And, and they, they were put into bondage, into slavery, for 13 years. At the end of 13 years, Sodom and Gomorrah and the rest of these decided to rebel. And what that did is it brought five kings down upon them. And it says in there there were four kings fighting against five kings. The result is this that the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah and these others panicked and they fled. And it tells us in there that down in this area there were tar pits and they got stuck in the tar pits and the kings ran away and hid. And while they did that, they abandoned, they abandoned the people and they abandoned their goods and the enemy came in and took them all off and took them back to, to, to where they had come from which is uh, several nations over by where Iraq is right now. So that's the background here. And we're going to pick up, uh, we're going to pick up in, let's see. We'll go to verse 11. And they, all, they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and they went their way. Verse 12. They also took Lot, Abram's brother. Now he's not, he's his brother in the sense that he's family. And Abram's, oh, Abram's brother's son, excuse me, who dwelt in Sodom and his goods and departed. So they got Lot, they got Lot's family, and they got all of Lot's possessions. Then one who escaped, verse 13, came and told Abram the Hebrew, for he dwelt by the Terebeth tree in Mamre, the Amorite, the brother of Eshcol, the brother of Aner, and they were allies with Abram. Now when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed, listen to this, 318 trained servants who were born in his own house, and he went in pursuit of them as far as Dan. Dan is located in the north of Palestine. Now, now think of this in a second. You've got five kings have just come down and routed four of them so that they panicked and left their people, their goods, and these five kings have taken the goods and the people of those four kings captive, and they're bringing them back to their own home area. And Abram now takes, what was it, 300, 318 trained servants and goes after them. Now remember, we saw in Genesis 12, God made a promise to Abram. And this is, this is we're learning how Abram walked by faith. Faith is always based on a promise that God has made, God's word on something, and it's based on God's character that God keeps his word. And so Abram has God's word, and we saw that God, word of God is, whoever blesses you, I will bless you, and whoever blesses you, I will bless, and whoever curses you, I will curse. In other words, I will treat everybody else on the basis of how they treat you. By the way, that's still true today. God treats nations and people on the basis of how he, we treat his nation of Israel. And so Abram's confidence 
was not in the 318 men. That's all he had available. So what happens? Let's go on with the story. Verse 14. Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, which was Lot. He armed, he armed his 318 trained servants who were born in his own house and went in pursuit as far as Dan. He divided his forces against them by night, and he and his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as Hobach, which is north of Damascus. They've come east now. And so he brought back all the goods. So it doesn't say he defeated them. He may have chased them off. But what four nations, Sodom and Gomorrah and the other two, could not do, Abram did with 318 of his trained servants. And he brought back his brother Lot and his goods as well as the women and the people. That's the women and the people of, of all the others, the kings. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheveth, which is the king's valley, after his return from the defeat of Shedalorim and the kings who were with him. So now the kings who have been hiding hear that Abram's bringing back everything that was taken from them, including Lot, and they come out to meet him. Now we're going to have a little break here because we're going to see what happens after this because someone else comes out to meet them. Verse 18, and this will take a little explanation. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of the Most High God. Now, let's take a look at who this Melchizedek is. And there are different, there are different opinions on this. But I will tell you my opinion. And since this is, I'm the pastor here, I'm right. <laughs> that doesn't even work in my own house. <laughs> Hebrews chapter, uh, where are we? Hebrews chapter 7. Let me break down the name Melchizedek. Melchizedek has two parts to it. Melchi, M-E-L-C-H-I, which means king, and Zedek, which means righteousness. So his name means king of righteousness, and he's described as the king of Salem, which in the Hebrew back in Genesis is Shalom which means peace. So his name means king of righteousness, king of peace. Does that sound like anybody we've ever heard of? Let's go on. He's the priest of the... Go back to verse 1. He's the priest of the Most High God, who Abraham met. Now, just to give you a little background, what's going on here? We've moved to Hebrews 7. We're going to go back to Genesis. Because Hebrews is a letter that was written... Some believe Paul, some disagree with that. That doesn't matter. The Holy Spirit wrote it. It was written to Jewish believers who had been dispersed out of, out of Jerusalem and were away from their home, home uh, temple and they were away from, from any source of encouragement. And people had come in called Judaizers that were trying to convince them basically to go back to the Jewish, old Jewish practices. So this letter was written to them to, compare, to remind them of the faith that they've learned to have in Christ. And it's basically to show them that Christ is superior to everything else that was part of Judaism. So he starts in verse 1 with angels, he goes on, and now he's come to the priesthood, the priesthood under the Old Testament, and he's using Melchizedek as a type 
of, of the, the true high priest, which is Jesus Christ. And so that's the background here. For this, now he's referring to the story here that we're reading in Genesis chapter 14. For this Melchizedek, king of righteousness, king of peace, king of Salem, priest of the most high God. Now, priest in the Old Testament represented somebody who was a go-between in the tabernacle of the wilderness, and then in the priesthood that God created, that Aaron was the high priest, first high priest over. And the, the, the priest represented, they bridged a gap, because you had a holy God who had called them out of Egypt to belong to himself, and God wanted to introduce himself to his people that had lost touch with who he was for 430 years in the bondage of Egypt. So God wants to embrace them. He wants to reveal himself to them. But he's a holy God. And we've talked about this before. I mean, he's not just better than everybody else. He is absolutely holy. Absolute means there is no darkness in him. It says that in James. There is no turning in him. He is pure holiness. In fact, those that had seen him, uh, Isaiah, I think it is, describes him, he's fire from the waist up and fire from the waist down. That doesn't mean he's a burning. It means he's glorious, so glorious. The only word they could figure of, think of was a fire burning from him. His glory is so amazing. Absolute glory, pure. And here's what happened. It, it's a force. Holiness is a force. So anything that is not pure holy comes in contact with that pure holiness, it's burned up or dies on the spot. That's why as much as God loves you, he couldn't just invite you to come to live with him in heaven. Because you and I aren't that holy. In fact, we're not holy at all. And if we are, compared to his absolute holiness, the Bible calls whatever holiness you have, filthy rags compared to him. So here's the problem. If God let us come into heaven, we'd all die on the spot. And there's some examples of that. Because Aaron's sons tried to get into a place where God did dwell in this tabernacle, where he did dwell in his presence and in his glory. And, and if they go in there, if the high priest went in there the wrong time, not wearing the right clothes, he would have died on the spot. Because he wasn't purely holy, and in the presence of a holy God, he died. So here's the problem. You've got a holy God wanting to have a relationship with a bunch of people that are not holy. So what's he got to do? He's got to provide somebody that can bridge that gap. So in the Old Testament, there was an order of priesthoods, which was under Aaron's leadership. It was the tribe of Levi, but it was Aaron's family predominantly. And God gave them certain robes, certain rituals, certain things they had to bathe in, certain oil they had to wear, certain procedures they had to go through. And if they would go through those procedures, if listen, if they would obey the stringency that God required of them, then God could treat them as if they were holy even though they were not. See, part of why God had all these strict rules for them was to teach them they weren't like any other people. They belonged to him. So they couldn't eat what everybody else ate. And there may have been 
dietary reasons for that, but the primary reason is to show them that they were different from everybody else because they belonged to Jehovah God and he belonged to them. So the idea of a priest is somebody through a means that God has designed would bridge this gap. Another term for it was intercede, to bridge a gap between two beings that can't touch each other. And that's in the Old Testament. But in Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews is explaining that under the New Covenant, there's a different high priest. And this high priest doesn't do it through some rituals he's gone through. This high priest doesn't do it by bridging a gap between the inner, te- inner, inner room of the tabernacle and the people on the outside. This high priest, which is Christ, bridges it with his own blood that paid for our unholiness. And by paying for our unholiness, it qualified us to receive his righteousness so that we can come into the presence of a holy God because we come in him and because we come in him, we come in his righteousness. And that's Hebrews in a nutshell. <laughs> so this is why this is... So Melchizedek is being used here as a type in the Old Testament and in the New Testament of the high priest Christ. But I believe, this is what I believe, and there are other people that believe this alone. I believe this is what is known as a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. What's pre-incarnate? Well, pre means before, and incarnate refers to his incarnation. Incarnation is not some condensed milk that you drink. Incarnation means coming and dwelling in a physical body. And the Word became flesh, John 1.14. And the Word became flesh. The second person of the Godhead, God's Son, became a human being. He was still God, but he became a human being. But before that happened, there are various occurrences where many theologians believe he appeared to man in different forms, like angels appeared. And I believe this is one of them because we're going to see why. This Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abram returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. We'll see that in a minute. Verse 2. To whom Abram gave a tenth part of all, being translated a king of righteousness and also meaning king of peace. Just a second. Let me check my notes here where we're going here. Okay, verse 3. That's what I wanted to get to. Look at this. This Melchizedek that's coming to meet Abram is without father and without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. So he has always existed. So this is not just some priest that happens to wander out of the wilderness. I read that in some commentary today. Because whoever that priest would have been, he would have had some beginning and some end, some fathers and mother genealogy. But this Melchizedek didn't do that. But he was made like the Son of God and remains a priest continually. So my belief is that this was Christ appearing to Abram before he was born as Jesus in Bethlehem. So let's go back to Genesis 14 and see what happens here. Verse 18, then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread 
and wine. Now, this will become more important to us either next week or thereafter because these are elements which obviously they, to us may trigger in you communion. But it represented, it, repre- it, was an, it was a step in entering a covenant. And we'll talk more about that when we get into chapter, uh, chapter uh, 15. So he's presenting a co- what would be a covenant meal to Abram. And look what Abram's response is. Let's, let's see what he says. And he, Melchizedek, blessed him. Here it is, being blessed again. Now, only God can do that. Blessed be Abram of God Most High. We'll see this when we get into covenant because that little preposition of is significance. Because that's a possessive preposition. It means belonging to. So what we see here is this high priest is saying he's on behalf of God. He's blessing Abram who belongs to the God Most High. That's, that's, uh, that's in Hebrew is El Elyon, which means there's nobody higher. There's nobody higher authority. There's nobody greater power. He is it. Ultimate. The beginning. He is the Big Bang. He is it. The top from which everything comes. And this is a priest of the Most High. And he is this Most High as the possessor of heaven and earth. He owns everything. So this is obviously God the Father. And this Melchizedek is representing him. And he's blessing it. So this is the second time Abram is blessed by God. Let's go to verse 20. And blessed be the God Most High who has delivered your enemies into your hand. So here's the priest operating in this go-between. And so he is on behalf of God blessing Abraham. And on behalf of Abraham, he's blessing God who has just delivered his enemies into his hands. With 318 trained servants, he defeated five armies. Because God had blessed him in those battles. He was delivered your enemies into your hands. Now, what we're, remember what we're learning here. We're learning how God is training Abram to grow in faith. They were learning the steps by which Abraham grew and developed in faith until we see at the end of this journey the amazing level of faith that he's walking in. But before we get there, we're going to see some ups and some downs. And right now we're in an up. Okay, Abram's response to this was to give him a tithe of all. A tithe just means a tenth. So for the first tenth of what Abram has received from this... See, he recognizes here that what he's received came from God. It wasn't because he had the greatest 318 soldiers that have ever lived. It wasn't because Abram was the greatest strategist that had ever lived. Abram recognizes that what the victory that he's won for his nephew is because God won that victory for him. And that everything that has come from that, because the practice in those days was if you conquered somebody, you got all the spoils of it. And so Abram's taking the first tenth 
of what he's gotten, what God has provided for him through this battle, and he's giving it to the high priest. He's giving it back to God. And this, in many ways, is taught as the root, the beginning of what we call, is called the tithe to us today. But I believe there's also another foundation for this. And that's back, we're not going to go there, that's back in Genesis chapter 3, and it's the story of Cain and Abel. And, and, and Cain was a farmer, and Abel was a herdsman. Abel raised cattle and sheep. And they each brought an offering to God, thanking him for what he had provided for them. And it says that, a, that, that Cain brought some of his crops, but that Abel brought the firstborn. And one of the principles in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, is God, because he is first, requires the first fruits of everything that he brings to us. And that's really the ultimate root of the tithe. It's the first fruit. And Malachi tells us it's always been God's. It's never been ours. It's something God entrusts to us so that we can worship him back with it. It says, bring your tithes into the Torah. It doesn't say pay them. It says, bring them. You pay something that you owe. You bring something that you want to give. And so, I don't want to get off on teaching about the tithe. What I'm talking about here is Abraham was growing in his faith that God was now his source. We saw back in chapter 13, I think it was, or 12, that, that, that when the famine came, he took everything into his own hands and he went down to take care of himself. So we talked then about where, where, is, where is our faith? When suddenly we get unexpected bills, when suddenly uh, our job may be threatened, when something threatens our, our financial situation, where do we turn to? Where do we go to? Where's your source? Abram's first reaction was to go to the world to find his source. So is our, is our source unemployment? Doesn't mean it's wrong to collect it, but are you seeing that as your source? Is your source some government program or bailout program? I'm not saying it's wrong to take it, but is that your source? Somehow, by God's grace, and you've heard me say this before, early on when I got saved, somehow it got stuck in my mind that God was my source. Now, that was easy because I was practicing law in a large law firm in Boston, and I was making more money than we could spend. So it was easy then. But little did I know at that time, within two years, God would ask me to leave that job and do just what Abram did. Leave my family, leave that, not my, took my immediate family, and go halfway across the country to somewhere I'd never heard of to go to Bible school without a job and without anything else. And I could do that because in that original, initial period of my walk with God, I had learned that he was my source. I'd watch, I'd learn to turn to God when I needed a raise. I never asked for a raise in my entire life as a Christian. I have never asked for a raise. I've never asked a person for a raise. I've asked God for it because I work for him. And I've told you stories before of how God, I can tell you three or four examples of where God gave me a raise through means that were absolutely naturally impossible, but he did it because I learned to trust that he is my source. That doesn't mean I've always been perfect at that. 
So we see Abram is beginning to learn that. We see that he, he began by when he had to make a choice of whether he was going to choose the fertile valley to live in or let Lot choose whatever he wanted. He trusted that God would take care of him enough to let Lot take that first choice. And now we see that he's seen God bless him. He's seen God lead him in victory to recover his nephew Lot. And now his response when he's met this Melchizedek is to, out of his own heart, to acknowledge that God is his source and to give him the first tenth, the first tenth of what he had collected. So let's go on and see the rest of this, how this comes out. And he gave him a tithe of all. Verse 21. Now the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons and you take the goods for yourself. In other words, give me my family, my servants, give us the people, but you can take everything else. And that was the normal practice in those days. If you rescued somebody's stuff, you got it. You got, they kept their family. So this was a normal procedure. Look, you, keep the, you went and risked your life. You keep the stuff. Just give us our families back and give us our servants back. Give us the people back. But you, we're going to bless you from what you, what you just did. Look at verse 22. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. So what does he mean, I've raised my hand? It means he's made a vow. He's made a vow to God, and he understands that the God he's made a vow to is the most high God. See, this is so important for us to understand in all of these things by faith is who this God is that we are in a relationship with, who this God is that we have a covenant with, who this God is that, that, that we're learning to trust. And, and Abraham had this understanding, he's the most high God. We're not going to turn there, but Jesus deals with this in Matthew chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus, there was a section in chapter 6 where Jesus deals with money. And the Bible talks a lot about money. And he, and he says, you, you can't serve two masters. He talks about the eye. He, said, he, said, he talks about the, your eye being evil. And he's talking about our heart. Because as he said, as the eye, if your eye is, is, is evil, which the word means sick, if it's diseased, then the light that's coming in your mind, in your body, that you're seeing, is distorted. It's not clear. It's not accurate. But if your eye is healthy, and then he says, if your eye is, is, is diseased, basically, the, the light that's coming in it is, is distorted, and it's, it's like darkness. But if your eye is healthy, if it's clear, there's no cataracts, there's no stigmatism, then the light that's coming in it is truth. And he's not talking about the two eyeballs in your head, he's talking about your heart. And what your heart is trusting in and what your heart is set upon. And this is why this is one of the first issues that he, Abraham has dealt with, which is where is his trust for his provision? Because Jesus goes on to say that you can't serve two masters. He's talking about where your heart is. He says where your heart is, that's where your treasure will be also. 
So whatever your heart's set on, whatever your heart's trusting in, that's going to be your treasure. And then he says, you can't serve two masters. You're either serving the stuff of this world or you're serving God. And so to make that shift, you have to recognize that the God who claims that right is the most high God and he is the possessor of heaven and earth. He owns it all. Psalms tells us he owns the cattle on a thousand hill. This is his. He owns it. We own nothing. We're stewards of whatever God has entrusted to us. And Abram has learned his lesson. And the tithe is one of the ways God has of reminding us that he owns it and we don't. So when our attitude is, well, God's taking the first 10%, then we've got the wrong attitude. God's allowing us to keep 90%. And I've learned over 43 years of tithing and walking with him that God will do far much more, far more with the, with the 90%, and we do much more than that, than, than with you can do with the extra 10%. But it's not even an issue of that. It's an issue of, it's a hard issue. It's a hard issue. So Abram said, I've raised my hand to the Lord God Most High, the possessor of heaven and earth. Next verse. I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap. In other words, I'm not going to take anything from you. Even though I'm entitled to it, I'm not going to take anything from you. I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abraham rich. In other words, he's saying, the only one who I'm going to allow to make me rich is the God that I'm in a covenant with. He is my source. So now we see Abram beginning to grow in his faith. And not judged by just how he feels, but by things he's done. He's just turned down an opportunity for somebody to make him rich. So let's bring it down to where we are. Who are we looking at? And we don't, you may not necessarily look at me to rich, but who are we looking at? Who are you looking at? Who am I looking at to make sure that I'm provided for and that I'm secure? Am I looking to the government? I keep seeing things come up on the internet uh, in the morning when I start trying to find where the news is uh, about you know, the status of the next stimulus check. Well, if you're trusting in the government as the most high, it's not the possessor of heaven and earth. And governments have come and they've gone. When I started practicing law, I represented some large banks. I mean, enormous banks. And they don't even remember their names anymore. They're long gone. I've seen major companies just disappear overnight. I represented a company that had 80% of the market share of a major product that you use all the time. And I watched it disappear in several weeks. Things that we put our trust in because we can see them. Things that we put our trust in because our, our society and our culture and our education tells us that these are the things that will build security in your life. They can go overnight. 1929. There were people that thought they were millionaires. One day... And the next day they had 
nothing to the point that many of them actually didn't have nothing. They owed. And they were jumping out of the windows in Wall Street in the great stock market crash. There were times in Europe when, when there was huge deflation, or inflation, and they just suddenly the, 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 the currency collapsed. What would we do? <laughs> what would we do if the Internet shut down? Suddenly the plug got pulled. We'd become so dependent, so dependent on these things for banking. It's convenient. I bank from my phone. We, everything from the phone. We learned to need it. I got to have it. I got to have it. I don't have my phone. Where is it? I can't leave home without my phone. Now it's not American Express anymore. You can't leave home without your phone. I don't want to shock you, but I remember when we didn't have them. <laughs> Most of you do too. We survived, didn't we? But we become used to these things. We become dependent on these things. And the more we do that, I'm not saying they're bad, they're convenience. But we cannot let those things take a place in our lives that belongs to God. And we see Abram beginning to learn this lesson with tithing. And so tithing is, and I'm not here to get you to tithe if you don't tithe. I'm just telling you, God uses tithe. In fact, I'll go back to something that I've taught before. One of the purposes of the tithe is to remind you you don't own anything. It's all God's, and you're the, just the steward over it. In the garden, when God created the Garden of Eden for them and placed them in it, he told them to enjoy everything in there. In fact, I think some translations say he commanded them to enjoy the fruit of this garden. He said, however, there's just there's two trees you can't eat of in the middle of the garden. The tree of eternal life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, why would he put them there if, he, if they couldn't eat them? Why would God put something there and then tell them, but you can't enjoy that. My personal belief is that it was God's way of letting, reminding them because he'd given them authority over the whole thing. He'd given them the authority. He'd given them, he blessed them. He gave them the ability, to, the right to enjoy all of the fruit of this. He gave them some responsibility, but he gave them authority. And authority can eventually go to our heads. So I believe God had to put a reminder in there that although I've blessed you and I want you to enjoy this, there are limitations. It's not yours. You're just the steward over it. And the tithe, and Abram had a sense of this, really is that. What, I got, what God has blessed me with, what God has blessed you with, is we're stewards over it, and we're, it's our responsibility to him. We can enjoy it. We can, we can enjoy it for good, God, good and godly things, but it doesn't belong to us. He's the possessor of heaven and earth. He's the deliverer from all our enemies. He's the deliverer from the situation you're in now. He's your healer. He's your provider. He wants to be everything in your life. This is what he told Israel he wanted to be. And so he wants to be the most, he wants that place in our hearts that we so easily give to our job, to our family, to everything else 
about him, or we'll include him in our life. But he demands to be first because he is the Most High God. And he knows that if we'll put him in that place, he's able to bless us because he can trust us with those blessings that they won't separate us from him. And Abram's growing in that knowledge. Growing in that knowledge. So I want to ask you, we're going to close a little early tonight, I want to ask you, you know, where are you in your growth faith? Just, I'm not asking you to answer or raise your hand, just to begin to reflect. There are ways you can find out. It's how anxious are you? How much do you get caught up in the news and it affects you? How much do you worry? Pastor Michael did a great series about worry and what's wrong with worry and how not to worry. Because worry separates you from the God who's the most high God. It doesn't mean you're not saved. It doesn't mean you don't go to heaven. But it breaks your fellowship because worry. But in fact, this is what Jesus talks about. Right after talking about that you can't serve God and mammon, he talks about, therefore I say unto you, take no thought for tomorrow. He's not saying don't plan. He's saying don't worry about tomorrow. He says the birds of the air, they don't worry about the food they're going to eat. God thinks far more highly of you. He loves you far more than he loves the birds. The lilies of the field, these beautiful flowers and things. We know that just in a few months, they're going to be gone. And that next year, God will create more. Worry means we're not trusting him. Worry means really he doesn't have that first place in our life because we're more worried about losing something than we are loving him. I'm not trying to condemn anybody. I'm trying to help us. And I'm talking to me too. Because I can fall into that also. We all can do that. What we're talking about here is growing in our faith. Remember I said at the beginning, and I'll probably say it again, God will meet you where you are as long as your desire is to grow. If you refuse to grow, and you're going to just get stuck where you are, God won't leave you. He'll prod you and prompt you But if you dig your heels in, he'll just let you do that until someday you have a wake-up call. And I'm not scaring anybody, but it's a time to wake up and realize we have to learn to grow in our faith. God loves you because when you're growing in your faith, you're growing in your relationship with him. You're growing in your knowledge of him. And we began with the scripture. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Why? Because in order to come to him, which is what he desires more than anything else, you must operate in faith because you must believe he's really there and that he will reward your prayers. He will answer you. He will respond to you. And you cannot do that unless you're growing in faith. And the degree that you're growing in faith, you're growing in your relationship with him. So just this is a challenge for all of us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you tonight. That as a father, your word tells us that you will challenge us, that you will, that you will challenge us to grow, that you'll correct us if we need correction, that you will train us and discipline us so that we will experience the peaceable fruit of righteousness. You are conforming us to the image of your son. You are at work in us by the Holy Spirit, both to will and to do your good pleasure. And so, Father, we thank you 
We thank you that you know where each one of us is in our walk of faith and that you love us. And because you love us, you will challenge us and you will meet us where we are. Help us to be honest. Help the Holy Spirit to reveal to us where we really are and help us to to be open to allow you to do with us in our lives what you did with Father Abraham, that we may learn to walk in the steps of the faith of our Father Abraham. And for these things we thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.